I'm Fran, and this is Consent Based Everything, a podcast about creating a culture of consent in our homes and beyond. Uh, today, I'm talking to Sophia Graham. Welcome. Hi, good to be here. Um, and I'm super excited about this because before I, um, uh, I'll ask Sophia to introduce herself, but um, before I do, I just wanted to quickly say uh, how I found out about you. Uh, which is um, I took Sophie Christophe's uh, consent-based education course some time ago and she shared about your concept of self-consent which I found just like it's almost like I was looking for it but I didn't have the word for it Uh, and you kind of brought it all together under this one word that made complete sense plus it had consent in it which you know I'm kind of obsessed with so I I was really pleased to find it um so that's how I found out about you and I've been a fan ever since so um I'm gonna let you just maybe talk a little bit about who you are uh and what it is that you do yeah okay well um yeah my name's Sophia Graham I'm a sex and relationship geek Uh, most of the work I do right now is coaching but I trained as a therapist in the UK and um I'm a queer person. I'm non-monogamous and kinky. I've been sort of steeped in communities around consent for quite a long time now. But the concept of self-consent, I think, just came out of some work that I was doing for myself and some work I was doing with other people as well. I went to a workshop uh, in Portugal in the non-monogamies conference there and Meg John Barker and I think Hannah Darville were presenting on handshakes and consent Mm -hmm. and the whole workshop started with the idea that you could negotiate for a different type of handshake or for not having a handshake or for you know uh, having a very long one or a very tight one or a very gentle one or whatever you were looking for and I asked the question but what about if you're not really sure what you're looking for what about if you don't know and at the end of that workshop someone came up to me and was like what if you don't know I don't know I don't know and I was like I know so many of us don't know especially if we've had trauma or especially if it wasn't modeled for us that it was okay for us to have boundaries or if we were taught to suppress them as lots of girls and women are Or what about if we were taught that particular emotions weren't okay? How are we allowed to have those emotions? And so I was doing lots of thinking and talking about it. Meg John and I had a few conversations about it. And I was like, I think it's about self-consent. I think it's about like that capacity to know with that interoceptive sense, looking into ourselves, like what is it that I'm feeling? What is it that I want to need separately to all of this? this stuff going on around me and then how do I interpret that how do I make sure I'm taking account of those cues and that I'm acting on them in a way that's respectful to myself as well as to the people around me you know so before I move into something so that's where where I came from with it and then when I became a wheelchair user I use a wheelchair sometimes now it became even more clear how important it was because people start grabbing your wheelchair to help you and you get that really strong I get that really strong sense of no (laughs) in my body 
And it really helped me to be like, oh, that really is there. I can really, really feel it sometimes. And to, you know, work on feeling it more at other times too. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and I just want to share like that I resonate a lot with this idea and this concept just because I I remember having a conversation with a, a friend I went to university with and we were both sitting like in a restaurant and we were both looking at the menu and literally did not know what we wanted like we were hungry but mm-hmm. you know and I have and we were just sitting there like we couldn't access that sense inside of us um mm. of like genuinely like what we wanted to eat uh and this was many years ago and um and then we both started having a conversation about like actually that was kind of our whole life like we didn't know what we wanted at any given time and we sort of just went al- went along with whatever was happening or said yes when we didn't mean it or like just didn't know and so we said yes sometimes you know or we said no or whatever um and I just I remember that really stuck with me because the narrative that I've had about myself has been like I'm undecisive I'm undecisive and I can't stick to things and I change my mind a lot so that was kind of my narrative like throughout my 20s and like a big chunk of my 30s um so yes so this is why this so your is- story of you sorry your story of you wasn't um I there's some part of me that knows but I can't access it it was I'm just indecisive I'm just like flaky or changeable and like the wind could blow on me and I change mm-hmm. and exactly. that's kind of an uncomfortable narrative about yourself isn't it the story of you is not very comfortable then it's not and it was very much like I can't stick to things like I start something then I give up easily there was this whole thing of like I give up easily I don't persevere but I think it's just because I couldn't access the thing that I actually wanted and so of course I couldn't stick with what I wanted either if I didn't know what it was um right but anyway I would I would love for you to like explain and define self-consent well (laughs) that's quite a big (laughs) ask isn't it um I think I think it begins with being able to bring attuned attention to our own desires, needs, and limits. And there's a lot to that, right? There's a lot to that because part of it is interoception. And that's the felt sense, being able to tell what's happening in our bodies. Mm -hmm. And there's a big continuum. Some people are fantastic at that and just know straight away. And those people are often very sensitive to what's going on in the body. So if they need to pee, they know right away. If they need, if they're hungry, if they're thirsty, they typically know really quickly. And often they know what emotions are happening in their body too, really quickly. And some people will say those people are oversensitive. Some people will say that those people are too much or their emotions are too big or they're happening too quickly. But they're just at one end of this continuum. And then at the other end of the continuum of people more like me who are like, I haven't drunk for seven hours and I'm definitely not thirsty, except I am. I just didn't realize it. Or um, I won't notice that I need the bathroom or I won't notice that I want to eat something or that I'm full, you know, when I'm eating. And I might not notice emotions very quickly, which is a strange thing for a therapist to say, frankly. But, you know, it's always taken me longer to pinpoint those things that are happening. And lots of people who are neurodiverse, people who are autistic or ADHD or ADHD, 
who I'm dyslexic and dyspraxic as well as um, ADHD, sit at one end or the other of that continuum. And the average is obviously in the middle. And actually in the middle is a pretty great place to be because you can access the feelings and the sensations, but you're not so sensitive that they make you act on them or they give you strong urges to act on them really quickly. And you're not either suppressing them or not noticing them. So a lot of work that I do with people is about moving towards that, being able to be responsive, being able to be available to your body without being overwhelmed by any individual thing that's happening so that you're more at choice. Because mm -hmm. I think that's what a lot of the self-consent works about. Yeah. And so it's learning to respond with a lot of openness, a lot of flexibility to our body and our emotions and our thoughts. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, I just want to clarify, what did you call the spectrum? Like, as in like, was it in introspection? Interception. 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 Okay. And it's it's a sensory system, just like our sense of touch, our sense of hearing, our sense of sight and taste. Um, interception is another sense that we have and it's that internal sense and it it's our sensitivity to our internal sensations cool okay I'm like and then <laughs> it's great <laughs> stuff I love interoception there's and occupational therapists are doing loads more work on it now and it's really interesting and exciting I love it um and then there's also some work on expanding our curiosity about that stuff and expanding um, our understanding of the difference between danger and discomfort mm -hmm. so lots of us will have a really strong internal fire alarm right it's when that flashing light is going on our dashboard and our emotions are meant to do that for us they communicate to us really rapidly when something is wrong if your kid is stepping into a road you want to grab them before you've had time to think about it and our emotions do that work for us because that fear like activates us really quickly but sometimes the fire alarm goes off when the toast's burning rather than when the house is burning down and <laughs> so we want to be able to do that discernment piece and part of self-consent is discerning between okay so I'm feeling something pretty strongly but is what I'm feeling about this moment and the situation I'm in right now, or is it an emotional flashback? Is it something from the past that's coming into this moment? And so I'm hearing this fire alarm, but actually it's, it's I'm feeling discomfort because something's reminding me of something rather than this moment being that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So there's like an element of kind of like taking a, a moment between when you um, feel the thing and when you react, right? Yeah, the moment of choice, finding mm -hmm. a moment of choice. And yeah. Viktor Frankl talks about this, about expanding that moment. And yeah, I love that. It's, the mo it's, it's so wonderful. It's the only moment where you can actually do anything. It's yeah. that yeah. sacred for, space, some people call it. Yeah. And for parenting, it's like, it's become it became relevant or more relevant to me when I started parenting because it's that moment, you know, between when your child does the thing and when you react to the thing, right? So. Yeah. And I think some of this is more relevant than in any other, any other area when you're parenting because it's so overwhelming, right? 
And I, one of the things that I talk about with people a lot is um, what are our attunement um, disruptors? So what disrupts us from being able to notice, to be, being able to be in self-consent? Mm -hmm. And I think one of those things is overwhelm. <laughs> and another of those things is urgency. And overwhelm and urgency are parenting through and through, right? They're like mm -hmm. present so much for parents yeah. because it's a 24 seven job, especially with younger kids. And it's thoroughly emotionally and physically overwhelming. Mm. And also yeah. sometimes you just can't be in self-consent. You can't, because can has something has to happen. Right. And, and sometimes, <laughs> you know, you're not, you don't have to, the time to check in or you don't, um, you know, your needs don't come before your child sometimes you know their needs are going to come first yeah. so then right. completely I mean yeah then you kind of lose yourself a little bit I think that's right and I I mean I think that's actually true of even adult relate adult adult relationships um certainly caregiving for elderly parents or grandparents I think most caregiving relationships have an element of that but I think even relationships where you don't have that caregiving element, there are going to be times when you step outside of self-consent, at least to some degree. Um, and I think it's about recognizing, am I still within what's okay for me, right? Like consent doesn't always mean I'm enthusiastic about this moment right now. Sometimes it means there are downsides to this and it's a bummer that I have to, that I'm making this decision out of these three bad choices and of these three choices. And I'm radically, I'm accepting that these are the choices I have. This is the one that's going to work out the best. Yeah. 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 And sometimes it's also about finding, you know, between two people or more, more than two people, finding an agreement that everybody can be okay with. And maybe some people won't be like enthusiastic about it, but yeah. everyone can kind of be like, sure, okay, we can move forward with this in this way and see how it goes kind of thing. Yeah, I, I love the idea of asking for 100% and then being willing to figure out what we can all get to and be good be good enough with. And I think um, I'm a mem I, I go to the local Quaker meeting here and Quakers have a um, decision by consensus type setup, and I've also enjoyed a lot of time at women's camp in Ireland where decisions are made by like 200 women on a field getting into consensus and those sorts of consensus making processes nobody's getting 100% pretty much all the time everyone's getting enough hopefully to be willing to be at peace with what's decided rather than struggling against it or feeling unpleasant things about it right yeah yeah, yeah. um we use that i i took a course actually a, so a sociocratic decision making course which is what the yeah. quakers do or it's inspired on on quakers decision making process and yes it's like decision-making by consent. So everybody has to consent. 
Uh, and so we try yeah. and do that in our family as well when we make decisions. And obviously it's a lot easier to do with like four people than 250. Yeah. But, um, but it's kind of a, it's a cool process because um, I think for many reasons, but but you also get to just like maybe go along with something and then see how it goes. Like it doesn't have to be your final thing, right? Like sociocracy right. has like uh, good enough for now, safe enough to try. That's kind of their motto. Right. And sometimes it's super disappointing, right? Because my local Quaker meeting is part of an evangelical Quaker group in America. And that evangelical Quaker group has a personnel policy that I think is unjust and that many other people in my meeting think is unjust and moving towards addressing it is slow and hard because we all have to come to consensus on it and some of us don't agree exactly with how we get there and that's emotionally hard work particularly if you're part of the group who it's unjust towards right if you're part of a marginalized group and there's and, and I'm a queer person and it's a policy that if you're in a same-sex relationship you must be celibate to volunteer then it's like a bit of a dagger to the heart when you when you talk to people about it and pe- people are, are, are talking about their reservations about changing it right that's hard and also the process is so valuable and so important so it's a both and situation where it can be a really wonderful way of making agreements and making family decisions and it can also reinforce existing oppression yeah I mean it can and actually there is the issue of like uh power imbalances in the circles where this you know where they use this process because there are always going to be people it's almost like it doesn't really directly address those power imbalances because it assumes that everyone is on an equal footing and so everyone has an equal voice and in Mm. theory like sure you're all sitting around the table but in practice no because that's just not how society is structured and so there will be imbalances of power and there will be people who like will be more reluctant to voice their opinion for many reasons um, and yeah. I think it doesn't maybe take that into account as much as it could. I agree. And I mean, I was raised in raised in white supremacy, like many of us. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was raised in a British colony in Papua New Guinea and went to a school where most of my teachers were white and nearly all of my classmates were black or brown and where I was usually one of maybe the only one or maybe one of a couple of white kids in the class and I was taught that my voice was important and worth hearing and so I developed that sense of confidence in my opinions or opinions that matter Mm -hmm. and I don't think that's divisible from white white supremacy because that really fundamentally is woven into how I became confident about speaking in the same way that many boys and young men are taught that their voice matters and that their voice needs to be heard. And so I saw that so much growing up because it was impossible to not see how race and how gender played a huge part in whose voices were encouraged 
in the schools I went to. Yeah. 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 And I think there's that tension between like, um, you know, identify as a woman and that tension between being a woman and like wanting to kind of like cheer myself on because like, you know, uh, women have, you know, the patriarchy and, uh, you know, I I should have a voice just like the men, etc. But then also being white. And so mm-hmm. you know, knowing that there's a power imbalance there and that maybe I shouldn't be as loud. You know, that's it's a right. kind of a weird, it's a tension. Yeah, yeah. And we sit at that intersection of many tensions because they're about age, they're about size, they're about disabled and non-disabledness, they're about being cis or trans, they're about what age we are and where we are in the life cycle, they're about the kind of relationships we're in. And we all sit at that point of tension. And I think when I talk about self-consent, I talk about how we all have biopsycho and social factors, biological, like our makeup, whether we're ADHD or autistic or not, um, what's going on with our blood chemistry, all that sort of what's going on with our hormones, what's going on with our bodies in general. So the biological stuff, the psychological stuff, what coping skills were we taught? What trauma have we experienced? What patterns have we got into? And the social stuff, the systems of oppression, white supremacy, patriarchy, the family patterns and the social, were we bullied at school? You know, what sort of social stigma do we experience? If Are we a sex worker? Are we doing work that's illegal? You know, all of that stuff um, comes to our experience. And so how easy it is to be in self-consent and to even notice when we're not is really heavily impacted by those factors really heavily impacted and of course it's hard to sit with both I have this privilege and also I I sit at this axis of oppression too Mm -hmm. and how do I step up and also step back and I think that's what we need to do right we need to be able to step up and step back I like that you phrase it like that. It makes it, it's, it gives it a visual as well, which I always find helpful. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, to be able to picture it in my head. Maybe that's just me. Um, <laughs> but speaking and of- And the last thing I'd say, self-trust and self-doubt. I think okay. we all need to like really work on having healthy self-trust and healthy self-doubt. So healthy self-trust is all about- how can I trust that I actually have this wisdom inside me to actually know <laughs> that my body has some of the cues and I also will have the skills, if not now, then at some point I will be able to develop them to figure out what it is that I want, what it is that I need, what it is that motivates me, what it is that moves me towards mm-hmm. my goals. And also healthy self-doubt, which is like, the ability to question, okay, I am feeling this thing very strongly, but is it danger or is it discomfort? I am feeling this thing very strongly. And if I give myself a moment to sit with it, is it bringing me towards my values? Is it bringing me towards what I want my life to be about? And I think that's that's part of it too. Yeah, I love that you said, self-doubt healthy self-doubt because I feel like 
nobody talks about that everyone talks about or at least in like uh kind of more progressive education uh spheres that i'm in and uh home education spheres like people talk about self-trust which of course is so important but no one ever mentions healthy self-doubt and i feel like a lot of people could do with some of it <laughs> public people um yep and but it's also a a good thing to just talk about with our young people right um yeah. that you can have both those things it doesn't have yeah. to be that you're just constantly doubting yourself or that you're like you, you always unquestionably trust yourself right yeah it's really great to be able to be, be able to hear disconfirming feedback to be able to go oh well, that really challenges the way I've been seeing myself or, oh, that really challenges this thing I was really sure was accurate. Um, and sometimes it's so hard to do that. I have a friend who vaccinated her kids recently and she hadn't given her kids the MMR when uh, they were small because the Wakefield stuff was happening at the time. And uh, she read the expose book and her kids grew up autistic despite the fact that they didn't have the MMR and um because you know autism happens sometimes right and um they they got the MMR in their teens and she was quite public about that because she was like well I believed this at the time I have since read these things and my thoughts have changed and this is where I am now and it's hard to do that and and it's especially hard I think around parenting choices because parents have to make an unbelievably large number of choices for these really precious humans mm -hmm. that they've been given temporary care of, right? Mm -hmm. And it's it's so hard. And often there is no one right way. There's a right way for your kid, but there's not one right way. And so I think, yeah. And I and I saw actually a, like a reel or a post on Instagram this week that was interesting. It was about, it was saying how like, you know, we're, you know, parents, when we're raising our children, we like overthink things and, you know, we are willing to kind of, I mean, most of us like willing to question and try to do the right thing. You know, we're all trying to do our best. But then once they've yeah. left, so once they've become adults and they've left, if our child comes to us and is like, you know, when you did that thing, like, this is how I felt. We're just like, don't talk to me about that. It's over now. Like, <laughs> what's done is done. I just did my best. Don't want to talk about it. Like, yeah, I just feel like that. Uh, like we could do as in like parents of adults could do with going back and just being like, yeah, maybe that wasn't the best choice. And that's okay. You know, we're not yeah. all best choice actually my dad did that with me this last summer um my parents made quite the unwise decision uh sending my brother and I across three continents on our own when we were teen when I was a teenager he was only 13 um to Disneyland for a week um <laughs> right by yourselves by ourselves and yeah I know right <laughs> <laughs> wow I know, right? Um, and he, he said this summer, that, that might not have been the best choice we ever made. 
Um, and I was like, no, you, th you think? <laughs> mm. Yep. Well, but I was surprised. He admitted I was... it and he brought it up and, you know, he... <laughs> Yeah, I think his wife had heard the story from her kids because I think my brother had talked about it at some point and she'd probably been like elbowing him about it a bit because she would never have done that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that's very common, actually. Parents in general, they don't really want to hear what their adult children have to say about their childhood. Not really, unless mm -hmm. if, if it's like slightly negative or whatever. So anyway well I think it's hard isn't it when you're doing the best that you can in a really overwhelming world where this nuclear family idea that two two adults can adequately meet the needs of tiny humans it's I don't I don't know how two adults within capitalism with this system where you're supposed to be productive all the time and you're supposed to be able to have jobs and raise tiny people I, I just don't think it's a practical system and I don't think it's yeah. possible but we'll so... to do it like this right you know and 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 I think I think a lot of parents now are just like I'm just doing my best and I'm not trying to do it perfectly like I hope there's yeah. like a growing number of parents who are not actually trying to like follow the manual and like do right. it step by step you know, this is how you become a good parent and like all of that. And it's just kind of you, you do what you can. And then, and, and also, yeah. then you're kind of open to like, you know, uh, talking about it later on. I, what, a, a friend of mine said that her parenting style, I think she was joking when she said this was, but was uh, benign neglect. She, her parenting style was to let, to make sure that, her children could make themselves breakfast as young as possible so she could sleep on a, on the weekend morning and like benign neglect letting them get on with it themselves as much as they were possibly able to and I think she was only semi-joking when she was talking about it because like it just is impossible to do everything yeah it is and in a way if you're aiming for benign neglect then you're not aiming very high so it might be achievable. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're aiming for something that possibly could happen. Right. I mean, as opposed to benign, really. Benign means that you're not really neglecting them. You're just right. maybe giving them more freedom. Right. I like to see it that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I suspect in her more serious moments, she probably thought about that. And I think actually when we start talking about things in this way and we can let go of the good bad dichotomy and right wrong and move towards like more description what is it that I'd actually like what would I like more of what would I like less of what feels good to me what feels helpful what feels nourishing as opposed to that kind of this is good and should be good for everyone this is bad and is definitely bad for everyone mm -hmm it helps us to be less judgmental of ourselves and more compassionate. Yeah. There's that like non, non-judging element, right? Yeah. Yeah. But we just kind of, we can see ourselves and the things we do and, but we can not necessarily have to label them good or bad. Right. Just kind of witness. Right. Them. 
yeah or we can label them helpful or harmful right or moving towards our values or not moving towards our values because there are definitely going to be times in everybody's life where they take actions that aren't in alignment with their values like we all can think of at least one time when we've done that where we've snapped at somebody when we wish we hadn't where we've taken for granted something where we wish we'd been more forthcoming with our gratitude you know where we've not been curious but when we think back we wish we were more curious you know there are always going to be times when we've not been our best selves because we're human and I think describing that as unhelpful as opposed to bad probably is helpful because it brings us towards okay there were things that caused that that didn't just come out of nowhere it was caused so what can I do to move back three steps and try and address those causes rather than be with the judgment of myself which is usually just a you know stuff for the shame monster (laughs) it's not gonna it's not gonna help you to get more flexible or move yeah yeah um so I wanted to ask you okay we've we've talked you've talked a lot about what it is self-concern I think there's more to it you have a wheel on your website which is super exciting I love wheels um so for anyone who's listening and you want to go check out the wheel I'll I'll put your um website in the notes to this show and we'll talk about it later but um but my question was was going to be how do you get self-concern so we know what it is, kind of. Like, how do we get it? How do we get it? Well, <laughs> I think we we first have to take stock. Where am I? Where am I in lots of different areas? So where am I on that interceptive piece, on that, like, being able to notice just what is without judging it, without, like, criticizing myself, without... Um, being angry with myself or being without that just noticing okay where like where am I right now and then figure out okay where are the things that I have influence over so we were just talking about going back three steps from not behaving like your best self what are the areas of life that I want to be focused on getting more into self-consent with is it with food is it with parenting is it with romantic relationships is it with your sex life is it with your work life what are the areas in which you're regularly moving past your boundaries but having a hard time noticing in the moment that that's what's happening Mm. because that's a lot of the time what happens and then there's some work on emotions that happens as well because emotions are such powerful uh communication communicators to ourselves and communicators to others so noticing if resentment comes up resentment means you're stepping outside of self-consent nearly all the time so noticing when resentment happens noticing when anger happens and figuring out ways to harness that information so that you can shift away from judging your emotions and having secondary emotions come up that are much bigger and much more longer lasting and moving towards, okay, this inf- emotion is giving me important and useful information. How can I take that in and thank that emotion for bringing it to my attention rather than getting frustrated with the emotion for happening at all? Because 
frankly, who wants to feel shame? Who wants to feel frustration? Nobody really loves those emotional experiences, but they're doing something. They're doing a job, right? Mm-hmm. And then what we were talking about, we work on discernment, discerning that difference between danger and fear and finding what our resilient edge is so that we can start trying new things. Um, and then also figuring out what are the interactions where when interactions with others where self-consent goes out of the window. Does it go out of the window when I'm in an interaction with someone more powerful than me? Does it go out of the window when I'm interacting with someone I have caretaking responsibility for? Does it go out the window in a romantic relationship? Like where, where are the interactions? Is it when I need to say no or like have a confrontation? Is it when I need to ask for something that I need? Is that the thing that like makes me want to crawl under the carpet and never say another word? So figuring out what are the interactions that kind of move me outside of it as well. And how can I work on those? Because sometimes it's a script. So this month in my self-consent course, I do a monthly meeting on self-consent. And this month we talked about um, making requests and saying no. And doing some simple scripts from dialectical behavior therapy as a starting point which have a kind of description of the situation and then a soft start, like I'd really appreciate it if, would you, would you be willing to that sort of start and then make a request. And then the last part of it is um, say something about what it means to you if they do the thing. So for example, I, I, because I've not been working, I've been doing your laundry a lot more than usual and I'd really appreciate appreciate it if you turn your t-shirts the right way out after you take them off um because it makes me it would make me feel so much better about doing your laundry for you because otherwise I feel really frustrated and it makes me feel like I'm just taking way more time than I need to because all these t-shirts are inside out when I come to fold them and it would make me feel great about doing your laundry and that's how I want to feel I want to feel generous towards you And so it gives you that kind of script for making a request to help you to practice that if that's something that's going to be difficult for you. Mm -hmm. And similarly with no, um, with no, it starts with validating a request and then expressing the disagreement with it. So for example, I know you'd really like to stay at the party tonight, but I'm feeling really tired and I've got work tomorrow. So I want to go home or it makes sense that you want to say because all these people are really cool and I'm ha- I can see you're having a good time and I still want to leave <laughs> does that make sense yeah 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 yeah, absolutely so it's kind of like boundaries work like that element of it is like whole setting boundaries like upholding them yeah and asking in some ways it's noticing and then set mm-hmm. noticing and then executing Mm-hmm. yeah okay yeah that's interesting and um I think there was I'm trying to visualize your self-consent wheel now yeah there's a bit about oh you say you talk a lot about practice do you yes. talk a lot about practice or, or am I confusing am I, am I well I do talk a lot about being a, pra- a regular practice like when, practicing and there is, a, is yes. practice and it doesn't just arrive right 
I think I think most of these things are a practice because wow. what has happened for all of us is we've got into particular patterns and we're not practiced at some parts of it. Either we're not practiced at the looking inwards part mm-hmm. or we're not practiced at the um, <laughs> taking the cues and responding with kindness to what our body's telling us part or we're not practiced at welcoming emotions or not practiced at executing boundaries, even important boundaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, and um, thanks for that. That That's all so interesting. I just find it like super, super fascinating. Um, I had another question, which is um, sometimes when I've tried to explain self-consent, it's been difficult uh, to get the uh, complexity of it across and I think a lot of people um, uh, think that maybe it's you know a lot of people have said to me but isn't that just like be staying true to ourselves I mean I think it there are lots of different ways of thinking about the same sorts of things right and I think being true to yourself has lots of elements to it so being true to yourself could be about um, staying with your values, which I think is important. Um, but I, th- I guess self-consent has that element that is really about tuning into yourself and showing up for yourself, right? That's really important. And mm, I think when we think about it as being true to ourselves, it just, I think it has a little bit less of the clarity around, I I want to treat my body consensually. I want to treat my emotions consensually. And using that language of consent, I think, can help us to be, to take it more seriously almost, mm-hmm. you know? Being true to yourself feels a little more wishy-washy than that to me. But yeah. I think this, yeah. this will speak to some people and not to others. Yeah, I mean, saying being true to yourself does speak to me, but it doesn't tell me anything about how to do it, what it really means, you know, yeah. what it looks like. And I feel like the concept of self-consent is is that, but broken down in all the different elements of that. Um, yeah. And then it's also uh, about what you said, being in solidarity with yourself. Like having, I think you said this in one of your blog posts, having a consent-based relationship with yourself, which I yeah. think is a great quote. Um, and yeah. also, and because it 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 shows the complexity of it, because we all know consent-based relationships are not easy and not simple. Um, there's lots of elements to them, like we said, the power element, and you know, the element of knowing what you want, of how to say no how to ask for what you know there's like a lot so I think when we put it like that it emphasizes how complex it is um okay so is there anything else that I maybe haven't asked you about that you'd like to talk about I think I think one of the things that it's usually interesting to think about is what self-consent isn't actually because I think when some people think about it they especially if they have a very powerful inner critic 
they think about self-consent as being kind of selfish Mm. or about like being really rigid and not taking other people into account and not really thinking of others or maybe it's something that you can do just in your mind you can like just figure it all out without consulting your body just like if you think hard enough about it you can figure it out um and no (laughs) or they they think that maybe self-consent is about like already knowing the answer and being able to just say well I know that this is true for me always and settling into that as just the way things are and I think we're much too fluid for that to be effective too and and also some people see it as navel gazing and inaction right as like just spending so much time just being focused on yourself and not on the world around and I don't see self-consent like that at all I see self-consent is really inherently an interactive thing because you're practicing becoming more and more aware of what's happening for you and responding to the cues effectively in lots of different circumstances so people who are working on their relationship to food for example might need to be in a very quiet room initially while they're eating to notice the cues for satiation for Mm -hmm. when their body has had enough or for noticing when they're hungry and over time if you're focused on noticing those cues of hunger or say or being satisfied you will start to notice them in a wider range of situations you'll be able to notice them when you're walking down the street and when you're having time with the partner and when you're at a party and that's the same for all of this self-consent stuff it's not just one part of it like the more you practice in different parts of your life the more you can do it on the go (laughs) and in lots of different circumstances and And it is an informal practice yeah because if we it's just informal... by ourselves in the forest, maybe we wouldn't really have to do much of it, right? Right, because we're with ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's really fundamentally about like bringing ourselves everywhere we go in a way that we're showing up. A client of mine had a wonderful, um, a wonderful metaphor for it recently. It was like, if you if you have um you've been given a present from your partner it's a bracelet and it's pinching it pinches your wrist every time you wear it and so you're going out for dates with your partner you're going and doing things with partner you're putting this bracelet on each time but part of your attention is on this bracelet and the fact that it's pinching you right are you actually bringing your full attention to those dates? Are you able to be fully present and relational and responsive and emotionally engaged? Probably not. <laughs> if you tell your partner that the bracelet's pinching you, maybe they can do something about it and sort it out. And then you don't have a pinching bracelet anymore. And that's good for both of you, right? Like your partner didn't, they can't mind read you. They can't automatically know that it's a pinchy bracelet. So you have to one notice that it's pinching two feel like it's worth it 
to say something about it and be willing to be resilient to your partner being maybe a bit hurt by the fact that this thing that they bought you is not perfect in some way Mm -hmm. and to then accept graciously accept when they offer to fix it or suggest that you do you know it's kind of it's it it really does come down to that Mm-hmm. And I think saying something about the Pinty bracelet is giving your partner a gift, actually. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Uh, I love that metaphor, actually. It makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, uh, would you like to just say a few words about um, where people can find you online or on social media if you're on there and the what you offer? Yeah, so um, right now, the thing I'm really excited about, I do dialectical behavior therapy skills, um, and I work with lots of different groups of people, but I'm doing a course at the moment teaching therapists and coaches and helping professionals how to teach DBT skills, and it's so cool, and I'm really enjoying it, and that's starting really soon. Um, And I also do two monthly groups. Um, My self-consent class meets once a month, and uh, my class called Calming the Chaos, which is about emotion and relationship skills. And that meets twice a month. Um, And so they're sort of groups of mostly folks who are LGBTQ or non-monogamous or kinky or some other kind of uh, social renegade. Um, (laughs) And there were wonderful classes full of fantastic people. The Calming the Chaos course, we're doing deep dive into different emotions at the moment. And we're going to be looking at what these emotions tell us, what they do for us, what's hard about them, how we can cope with different sorts of emotions in ways that are effective in our lives um, and about how we experience them and name them differently as well. So Great. I'm really excited to be doing that work. Great. And I'll uh, put a link to all that in the notes to the episode um so people can yeah. and are you on social media uh not very much i'm on facebook and twitter kind of but but rarely uh, and i have a blog at uh, loveuncommon.com yeah. and that's where i put loads of stuff uh from the work i'm doing okay great um thank you so much for chatting to me today it's been an it's been delightful yeah thank you for listening you can find me fran at big mothering on instagram if you enjoyed the podcast please consider rating or reviewing it it makes a huge difference and thank you and bye-bye